Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Okay, so I can see Chris scared a few people off last week. <laughs> I'm, I'm just teasing her. I thought it was brilliant. Really extremely helpful. Um, yeah, so I want to say a couple of things. Chris might want to add a thought or two. Uh, and then we've got a question we want to answer and then we'll see what springs, see what springs out of that. Um, just some interesting, um, interesting little things. Um, I'm, I'm very aware that that we are in a prophetic flow at the moment. Now the problem is most people think if you're in a prophetic flow, that means everything's going your way. Uh, sometimes it can be quite the other. And in fact, if you um, if you even understand Old Testament prophetic flow, it was always because there were stuff going on that that God was trying to um, trying to have His two penneth in the situation to help. Um, because one thing I, I, I was thinking today, and um, I wrote it down, was that um, that in the New Covenant, a lot of people confuse punishment and consequence. So believing because there is no punishment, there is therefore no consequence, which is a very silly mistake to make. Um, Now, I believe there's no punishment because I believe there's no judgment, but I absolutely believe there is consequence. So um, our lives are not consequence-free because we're under grace. Uh, Grace is with us in every consequence, but there is still an issue that we want to try and have some input in dictating what the consequences of our life are because remember a consequence is a sequence connected to something that's what the word is made up from a con sequence a connected sequence so we can interfere with the sequence of events which uh, therefore gives us a different consequence so um, I what's interesting in this is how many things you know have been going on from you know I've had some issues to face over the last week and it's interesting what has bounced up out of that and what has been coming. And what was interesting today, I just thought I'd mention it before I talk a little bit about prayer, is um, uh, Chris brought some old Bibles home from number 12 across the street where we did have our office, of course now we're in 13. And um, uh, I picked this one up. This is, the, this is the last real Bible that I used. Okay, That's, that's not one of these... Bibles, okay, so this is the last, this was my last real Bible that I used for, um, for preaching, and I probably haven't used it in six or seven years, um, doesn't mean I haven't used the Bible in six or seven years, but I haven't used this particular one, uh, but Chris brought them on today, and um, you know, what we're going to do with these, and uh, I, it's hard to part with some things, isn't it, because they, they mean more than actually what they are, but uh, what was fascinating is, if you remember, um, two Saturdays ago, I talked about um, Caleb and Joshua. 
talked about the journey that the children of Israel were engaged in uh, and what it was about and why it was important, uh, but also about the fact that, that um, people died on the journey. A whole generation of people died on the journey. Now, I equated that, being very honest, to uh, basically they left because um, dying is the ultimate leaving, but nevertheless, the parallels are the same. Uh, they were going to a new place on their journey, and people left in the process. Um, a whole bunch didn't. Uh, a whole bunch stayed. A whole bunch went with them. Um, but sadly, the ones who, who most readily succumbed to leaving on the journey, which means they never reached the place that they had actually invested into going to, but never were going to go there, were mostly a generation that were there at the beginning. Okay? And um, one of our problems in our journey, or blessings, whichever way you want to look at it, um, is the struggle for those of you who've been with us from very early on or the beginning of the journey. Because where we are now, what we are teaching, what we are saying, what we are taking a hold of is different. Now, it doesn't mean one was wrong, the other was right. Our evolution, our journey has meant that we have had to change. Now, some of you have not been around long enough to know that what we were that some of you remember was an evolution from something before that, that some were with us, like people like Barbara, uh, Eunice, uh, Dave Sager, Liz, some of these people were with us way back then when we were something before we were what we became as the rock. And uh, we have simply made another journey. Now, these guys, have, uh, like me, like Chris, have made a journey through uh, one transition from what we were coming into what we became as the rock and making a journey into another transition uh, into who we are becoming. But nevertheless, um, you know, if you know anything about, about Bible history and the records of the journeyings, people will always die on the way. It is a risk that we all face if we are not aware that we're going somewhere and therefore we can't stay where we are because we're going somewhere. So I preached that message. Someone took it as a confirmation that they also should uh, not be part of it, which is beyond me, but you try and figure those things out. Uh, and if you remember, what my appeal was is if we're going to make it, it says, my servant Caleb has a different spirit. So it was essential if you're going to make the journey to have a different spirit. And the spirit is not something that you create yourself. A spirit is something you receive and you receive because you have faith in what God has called us to. So, so in the whole issue of the children of Israel, uh, Moses, Caleb, Joshua could not describe to them where, what it looked like where they were going. They could tell them the direction. They could say, this is where we're headed, but they could not describe what it looked like. So it takes a different spirit for those reasons. But this is what is interesting. You know, um, some of those things got on my spirit a little bit, and you get a little bit down. But Chris brought this Bible home, and it was just one of the other things. So I have two pieces of paper in here, only just two pieces of paper from scribblings of things that I've said in messages. This is the first thing I read. The revelation that Caleb came to Caleb and Joshua, uh, sorry, the revelation that came to Caleb and Joshua didn't come in the land, it came in the desert. And, and they also survived the desert in full confidence and hope of the fulfillment of God's promises. 
These are the fascinating things that says, hey, God is speaking, God is moving, and these are the confirmations. The first thing that I read, okay? I could tell you another first thing that I uh, saw on Wednesday last week, and they're all confirming the same thing that God is speaking to. My recommendation to you would be get a different spirit. Because there is always a consequence to all things, and sometimes we don't speak strongly prophetically because it's like, well, just everybody should just do what they like. I don't want to just do what I like. I want to be in on this to the full extent of the journey. So I want to encourage you that uh, get the different spirit. The other thing that I read, which was also interesting, was some years ago I made a statement that I repeated very much, and it was that the course of your life is not determined by the circumstances you face, but by the choices you make, which is also in here. And I read that and I thought, yeah, that's very important. And then it brought me to... uh, to one other thing that, that has been significant in my life. I talked for a long time um, about the principle of barbarians to bureaucrats. And uh, it's a seven-step principle. I'm not going to give you the whole thing tonight. That's not what we're here for. But the two things that, that begins the process in any business, any company, any church, it always starts with the prophet, which brings inspiration and innovation. But then that moves to the barbarian, And the barbarian creates crisis because there's a need for conquest. And uh, we often talk about being barbarians. Where are the barbarians? But you see, the problem is when you start being barbarian because you've got inspiration and innovation, what that creates is crisis. It creates crisis of thought, crisis of expectation. And uh, of course, that requires then that we exert our energies for a conquest, to break through, to overcome to make it. So I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to say, um, stay on board because there's stuff happening and God's in it and I don't want you to miss what, what we've moved to. All right, is that all right? Good. Right, so I'm going to say a few words on the, the prayer thing tonight. I know that many of you are interested and then we'll come to the question and see what comes out of that. Okay, so just, just a few comments from from me, okay? So I'm not going to revisit what Chris has done because she did that really excellently. Um, th- there are several things about prayer. One is, one is the thing about, um, I just need God to do stuff. So it becomes the, you know, extreme of it becomes, you know, God is our Father Christmas who we go to because we want presents. Um, the other one is the thing about um, relationship with God, where we have prayer because, you know, you build a relationship with God. And um, I mean, there's truth in both of them. We, we, we need to connect with the dimension that runs parallel with us, which is the dimension of eternity, and I think prayer is part of that. Um, but there's also the other thing that, that sometimes when we talk about, you know, prayer builds relationship with God because me and Jesus are so in love, which is very wonderful, but, but sometimes, sometimes it can miss the point because it actually floats into some kind of self-centered, um, uh, make me feel amazing type of thing to the exclusion of all else, Okay. Uh, one of the phrases that shoots around now is, is the Jesus is my boyfriend principle. People want the kind of church where Jesus is my boyfriend. And if you listen to a lot of the songs, the Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Um, 
But there is, a, there is a particular word that should be at the centre of our thinking that helps to balance that, and that word is communion. Um, because, as we've already said many times, there is no such a thing in the Bible recorded as a personal relationship with God through Jesus. That's a phrase that's been invented by um, evangelical Christianity. Now, there is, there is truth in it, and I understand what it means, and... Um, you know, it, it was an attempt to describe something, but of course, the more you look at the purpose of the cross and the extent of the covenant, uh, the more you have to question whether that's the point of, of the gospel or of, of Jesus. And, um, but communion is a wonderful word. That's why, that's why um, the breaking of bread and the wine became known as Holy Communion because it's about something that's not just a relationship but it's about the whole idea of people being together round a table having a, having a common concern and a common desire and a common care and a common love for each other that is based on, on communion rather than just this idea of my own personal relationship. So yeah, we, we need to develop uh, a knowledge of who God is to us and who we are to him. But at the end of the day, if it's in that communion arena, it means if we're having communion, anybody can come to our table. The other alternative is keep your butt out, leave me alone, this is me and Jesus. And, and I'm not sure that that's, that's actually what it was meant to be or whether whether that was healthy. Now, I know there's things around that. You say, well, Jesus went away alone to pray. Isn't it interesting that we have no clue when he went alone to pray what he prayed? We're only told, as Chris said, when they asked him and said, how should we pray? And says, this is how you should pray. And we have what we call the Lord's Prayer. And uh, also when he prayed for his disciples in John, John 17. You know, this is what I'm praying. Those are the only two real clear um, incidences of as recorded so so we don't know we, we can we can create pictures from our own sense of what we want of what Jesus will have done when he was alone with his father which which may not be may not be accurate so I think the whole thing is a development of communion. Now, again, there's, there's lots we could talk about that. I'm not going to go any further on that because I'm determined tonight not to take a lot of time. Um, another point I wanted to make about prayer. So, so if we take, what, however we develop our prayer life, it should be around that idea of communion, okay? Not the idea of just me and Jesus is my boyfriend and stay out of this and he loves me better than he loves you kind of thing. Because I have to say, a lot of people are looking for that. Okay. Uh, so, prayer under the old covenant, you understand what I mean by that? Everything that existed before we have the new covenant of grace and, and you know, the, the whole thing of I make a new covenant with my people, we've talked extensively about that. So if we think not just of Old Testament and New Testament, but old covenant, which was driven by works and the law, and the new covenant, which is driven by grace and, and imputed or given righteousness, received righteousness. Um, of course, they do, they do conveniently to some degree separate themselves into the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible. That um, uh, the Old Testament is mostly dealing with an old covenant mindset, but as we've already taught you, people like David 
and Abraham were not operating in an old covenant mindset. They had a new covenant mindset in an old covenant system. But laying aside all that technicality, um, there is prayer under the old covenant. And you read it a lot, particularly in places like the Psalms, and you hear it in the prophets. And there's something very noticeable about that, which is that prayer under the old covenant exists under the understanding that you must petition a higher authority to act on your behalf or give you permission to do something. So this idea that we have to petition God because he is a higher authority in order for something to be done or to give permission for us to do something is an old covenant model. And that old covenant model actually, it comes from a lot of areas. It comes from society because in the context of how society was structured, you petitioned someone in authority to act on your behalf because you, you had no freedom or autonomy to act for yourself. Everybody was under somebody. Everybody was a slave to some system. So the idea of prayer worked in the family. You petitioned the head of the house to meet the need that you have or to give you permission to do something or you petitioned the tribal leader or you petitioned the king. So this, this whole idea under the old, co old covenant was that you petitioned whoever was in authority so that they would uh, act on your behalf or give you permission to do something. That's the old covenant model. Now, you've got to bear in mind that verses that are used in the context of prayer, like if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear forget from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land, comes in an old covenant model of people who only understood life in the context of you are not free, you have to petition a higher authority for permission to do anything or for something to happen. So those kind of prayers are Old Covenant, Old Testament types of prayers. Okay? The problem is that we have not had people distinguish to us what prayer was like in the Old Covenant and what prayer is like in the New Covenant. So we then drag that through with us and think, oh, you know, the way to get God's heart is if we, if we as people will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, then he'll hear, then, like Chris said last week, then, or in other words, you are going to be recompensed for the work that you do. And then you're going to say, oh, look what grace did. No, it didn't. You were recompensed for what it was that you did. You twisted God's arm to try and get him to do something. So a lot of how we prayed was from that old model. Now, now um, if you are an optimist, you will find all the times when you think that worked. If you are a pessimist, you will only ever remember all the times it didn't work. When you prayed for relationships not to break, and the did. When you prayed for someone to be kind, and the weren't. When you prayed for somebody to be healed, and it didn't happen. So if you get into the pessimism, the issue is we then start to bring condemnation on ourselves rather than saying, actually, it might be how we've understood prayer that is the problem and not me, right? Because for every book that's been written about the power of prayer, there is an equal and opposite one. 
And usually the one that's about prayer says, this is how you get your prayers answered. The other one is 57 reasons why your prayers are not being answered. And there, is, there are bookshops full of those books. You know, 58 reasons why your faith didn't work. Or in other words, we've got to give a wide spectrum because what people are saying is, a lot of the time this doesn't work in the way that you're wanting it to work. So we'll give you a reason why it doesn't work. And then you can feel really godly because you know why it didn't work. And usually it didn't work because you weren't up to it. You didn't have enough. You weren't good enough. You didn't pray enough. You didn't pray the right words. I would say, no, that means there's something wrong with our understanding of the dynamic. Because God is good and God is kind and God is benevolent. And we haven't taken into account the other factors. And we've tried to sometimes pray our way through things that you couldn't pray your way through because they are connected to other issues. You know, so for example, if I want Jenny to be a certain way towards me, but she has no intention of doing so, I am pray till the cows come home. But to change that, God would have to overrule Jenny's will. He would have to manipulate her to do something that in her heart she doesn't want to do. And I'd get an answer to prayer. But meanwhile, she has been taken prisoner by a God who is now manipulating her to give me what I want. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so some of the things we pray about people, they are governed by other factors. So don't be so hard on yourself, Okay. So other phrases like, you know, oh, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You're not going to read that in the New Testament. You're not. Paul doesn't write that. That comes under an old covenant understanding that says, God is out there and we are here. My soul longs after you means you're not present. Okay? But Jesus says God is present. So when we get hold of those things and say, oh, I need to pray to find the presence of God, you know, my soul longs after you, we are actually saying, you're not present, you're a God who is out there somewhere, and I'm here, and somehow I've got to get you to come here to help me, and hopefully you'll pity me enough to step into time and space. Well, that's an old covenant understanding, and and sadly, in in our concepts of prayer, we have carried through... Too much old covenant understanding and put pressure on ourselves and I think sometimes dishonor God as well because we're saying you're a way out there, I'm here, I'm pleading for you to come close to me and you won't, okay? That's all Old Testament stuff. Now prayer under the new covenant should exist within the understanding of God as father, Jesus as brother and Holy Spirit as helper. So it's no longer the old covenant concept of a superior authority who is not present with me because I'm not worthy to be in his presence because he sits in his throne room but I'm out here and if only I could get a message to him for him to do something out of his throne room. No, in the new covenant it completely changes. It exists within the understanding of God as father, Jesus as brother and the Holy Spirit as helper. It's a totally different place from which we begin and the confident knowledge that you are fully in the fatherhood of God, that he is fully father toward you, and removes the Jesus as my boyfriend objective in prayer. Oh, if, you know, Jesus, I just want to win you as my boyfriend. That's, it's, it's, look, just don't get me started. Don't get me started, because it, you know, just take it from me. A lot of what we do to try and express 
what we think about God is that Jesus is my boyfriend. Now, I've got to win Jesus as my boyfriend. And we've just got to wise up and wake up to the reality of all of this stuff. So, do you understand what I'm saying? So, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of Jesus, and the, the help of the Holy Spirit, uses a funny word in the Greek, which I always, I always thought paraclete was the word, and I thought, it's too near to parakeet. I don't like that, you know. The Holy Spirit is my parakeet. Um, Paraclete was a, an old Greek word from law, which, which was someone who intervened, who stepped in to speak for you, okay? Was somebody who helped your legal process by speaking on your behalf. They helped you in life. You went to them, they spoke for you. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit kind of plays that role. So, so, so we've got to kind of think in our minds, are we, are we forming our prayers from an old covenant concept of appealing to a higher authority, or are we forming our prayers from a new covenant concept which exists within an understanding of God as Father, Jesus as Brother, and Holy Spirit as Helper? So we just got to think about that and ask those questions as we formulate what we pray. So let me, let me give you a couple of scriptures to show that we're, we're um, something. Okay, Hebrews 4... Verse 14 through 16, uh, this is in the NIV. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. Our confession. Confession becomes a very important word in the new covenant because confession is a declaration of something that exists rather than a request for something to exist. Do you understand that? Confession is a declaration of something that exists, not a request for something to exist. And the focus of new covenant prayer, because God is Father, and Jesus is brother, and Holy Spirit is helper, is not based around request, it's based around confess. Okay? And what are we confessing? We are confessing, not how we think God should work this out and what we think God should do to make this look okay, but we are confessing that because he is Father, because Jesus is brother, because Holy Spirit is helper, this is going to be okay. Right? It's going to be okay. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but we, he was, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly, right? Let us therefore come boldly. If you read prayer in the Old Testament, you will see that boldness was not a factor of the prayer. Because while ever God is not Father, you cannot come boldly. You have to come respectfully. You have to come submissively. It was, sir, please can I have some more? You know, Oliver Twist, please, sir, may I have some more? Oh, if only you would bless us, Lord. I know that we're so sinful and we're so unworthy, but Lord, if only you would come, if only you would shine your face towards us, all that kind of stuff is not coming boldly. So in the, in the old covenant, we come submissively. Oh, we're so far away, it's all gone so wrong. And, and like a deer panting for water, my soul pants for you because I'm so thirsty and we're so... Un here it changes, we come boldly. Where do we come boldly? To the throne of grace, okay? Not to what they understood was the 
implications of throne or authority was not grace. In their understanding, throne and authority usually meant, uh, usually meant instruction, it meant law, it meant rule, it meant judgment, it meant measurement. But we now come boldly, not just to the throne, because we can still hold that old covenant mindset that says we're coming to the throne to beg God, oh God, please, if only you would do this. He said, no, we come boldly to the throne of grace because we understand that we are now under grace and not under law because God is Father, Jesus is brother, Holy Spirit is helper. Uh, And that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Nobody's denying that we have times of need. Nobody's being stupid here and saying that we don't need help. But it's just helping us to realize that we come with a confession and we come boldly realizing that the mercy that flows from the grace of God is there to help us in our time of need. But then we shouldn't necessarily start dictating what we think that help is. Okay. Then Ephesians chapter 3, I just wanted to read these couple of scriptures. Ephesians chapter 3, and verse 11 kind of is a follow-on from obviously some verses before, but I didn't want to get into the other verses. So it kind of kicks in with this. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, this is the statement, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Um, some other versions, the, the, the one of the, um, uh, one of the, other Bibles that's them trying what's the one that gives all extra words in paragraphs and amplified. One of the amplified Bible puts it as boldness, confidence, and liberty. We approach the throne with boldness, with confidence, and with liberty. Okay? We approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask therefore, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for which you are my glory. Okay, so so how do we approach? We come boldly. We approach with freedom and confidence. And at the core of that is our confession. And our confession is based in a new covenant understanding of God as Father, Jesus as brother, Holy Spirit as helper. Okay? So we're not coming to some despotic God. Because again, you know my feelings about that. When I listen to people pray, sometimes I think that God you're praying to must be an awful person. Because I'd never treat anybody that way. I wouldn't keep them waiting like that. I wouldn't resist them. I wouldn't make them beg. Verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. See, that's communion. Power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So he's saying, here's, we're approaching God with confidence, but what's the objective? To somehow try and grasp how wide, long, high and deep is the love of Christ. Okay? Because if we can lose ourselves in that, we can stop worrying and understand that out of that love, God is going to work with us and for us. Now verse 19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So, um, if you want that sense of being filled to the measure of the fullness of God, this is how you arrive at that place, by 
trying to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ, okay? To know that that surpasses all of our knowledge, which again is bringing you back to God his Father, Jesus his brother, Holy Spirit his helper. And then it says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So you think, well, think like, what's the point of asking and imagining then? Well, that's our part in it. But what this is doing is say, don't get carried away with your role of asking and imagining. Because God is able to do immeasurably more than that. So it's not focused on the accuracy or the ability of your asking or imagining but he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is already at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Pretty good scripture. Okay, so, okay, I'm not going to linger anymore on that. Said enough on that. So, uh, one other thing I want to do is to look at what Jesus meant when he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Matthew 21, 13, Luke eleven seventeen, Luke 19, 46. Um, one of them says, my father's house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. The middle one there. The other, my father's house should be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And of course, this is, this is quoted and, you know, there's even, there's even, um, uh, there's even a, a, a church group called IHOP. How many of you know who IHOP are? Okay. Uh, International House of Prayer. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, they stole that from another company, which I, I think I might prefer in America, called International House of Pancakes, where you can get a great breakfast. So um, if you are in America and you see IHOP over the door, don't think it's going to be a church where they're going to pray. You're going to get a pancake and eggs, and it's very nice. Go and enjoy it. Um, Here's my issue with that. Um, my father's house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. One of the most misrepresented, mispresented truths in the whole of the Bible. Because very few people, in fact I haven't heard any, I have to be honest, uh, locate it back to the original statement that is in the book of Isaiah, from which Jesus quoted when he said, my father's house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, I find that fascinating because when we've talked to you about the mischief in the church, that's one of those mischievous things so that we can shape the pressure of prayer the way that we want it rather than having to submit it under the criteria that it was introduced. And because we want to maintain the whole issue of prayer under an old covenant model, let's leave this bit out because it's going to blow that out of the water. So when you look at it, actually, house of prayer doesn't mean a house of people who come together and, oh, Jesus, we just ask you, please help us and do that. It doesn't mean that at all in its original context. Therefore, Jesus didn't mean that. Now, where it comes from is Isaiah 56. I'm just going just to cover this little scripture very quickly, Isaiah 56, verse 1 through 8. We talked about this when we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, the guy who had had his bits cut off, um, probably when he was a young person, probably against his own will, and found himself very different in society, excluded. And of course, uh, Acts talks about him going down to the, 
to the temple in Jerusalem at the time of the feast, but he was an Ethiopian and he had no bits. So according to the Old Covenant law, he didn't qualify to be anything meaningful in that Old Covenant understanding because he didn't have what it takes. He had stuff missing from his life that they thought he should have, and if he didn't have it, he couldn't be included. So the guy's leaving his trip to the feast in Jerusalem in Acts when the guy called Philip meets him. Now again, I'm not here to talk about that story except to say this, that I proposed at the time, imagine what his view of the church was when he's going back to Ethiopia. Um, the best that happened was that, you know, very, very generously in the Old Covenant model of, of Judaism, they had a, a place in the temple courts called the Court of Gentiles, the Court of the Gentiles, which meant you could come, but you couldn't go anywhere other than the Court of the Gentiles. So it would be like us saying, okay, um, anybody who's a sinner, we're going to rope off this area here and you have to sit in there. So guess what? Everybody knows who the sinners are. We've made that very clear. Um, now again, you know, we'd all need to sit over there really, but you understand the point that I'm, the point that I'm making. Um, so he has to go to the court of the Gentiles, which means that he is, he is not included. He is, he is excluded. And so the message is, you know, we want what you might bring that might profit us in terms of gift and money, but actually you're out and we can't include you. So, so this guy's, this guy's uh, perception of the church, you would have to understand, going back to Ethiopia, is very corrupted. Then Philip met him and, and changed his mind by reinterpreting some of these scriptures. Now, the point is, when Philip talked to him, it relates right to this. Philip talked to him, this guy Philip the Evangelist, talked to him out of Isaiah. And we only have a little bit of that recorded, but when you look at the whole thing, it connects into this chapter 56, which you'll, you'll see why uh, in a minute, and you'll see why I've given you the little bit of backstory, okay? So this is Isaiah 56. I'm going to read this in the New King James Version because it reads a little nicer, okay? In the New King James, it says, Thus says the Lord, Keep or preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. I, I tweeted out today because it struck me when I read that again that the word of the Lord was preserve justice and do righteousness where the attitude of the church has become preserve righteousness and do justice, right? Which is why there's so much judgment and condemnation in the church. Preserve righteousness, let's all keep holiness. It's not anything corrupt, Live holy lives and pray holy prayers and, and do justice. In other words, make sure those who haven't got what we've got and don't see how we see and don't believe how we believe know that they do well. That's not the way it is here. It's the other way around. Preserve justice and do righteousness, okay? Uh, then verse two, blessed is the man who does this. So there's a blessing there. And the son of man who lays hold on it. And this is very important. Who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, that doesn't mean you didn't go to church on Sunday. Or if you're a Jew, you didn't go to synagogue on Saturday. When, whenever you read defiling the Sabbath, it's talking about the Sabbath as a principle, not the Sabbath as an event. Okay? 
And the Sabbath was on the seventh day, God what? God rested. Why did he rest? Because he had finished all his work. So on the Sabbath of the week where Jesus is crucified, what is he doing? He's resting. Why is he resting? Because he's finished all his work. So when you read, blessed is the man who does this, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, it means that when we defile the finished work, when we start suggesting that it's not finished and it's not complete and everything's not done and we have to do, we are defiling the Sabbath. So it says the man who's blessed who doesn't defile that and who keeps his hand from doing evil, that means promoting that. And here's what he says, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Or in other words, don't let people be talking about how sinful and horrible and wicked and condemned they are under the fall and you know the bound in original sin. He actually says here, don't let, don't let them, um, uh, don't let them uh, who join to the Lord, don't let them say the Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree, because the eunuch means he can't have any kids, okay? So his possibility of having an inheritance is zero, but here it's saying, don't let the eunuch say that. For thus saith the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, or in other words, to the people who are unqualified by the rules that were given that you couldn't be a priest and you couldn't minister, he said, to those people who keep my Sabbath, who live in the finished work of what I have done, and choose what pleases me, which is living in the finished work that he has done, and hold fast to my covenant, which is that it's not by works but it's by grace through faith, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. Or in other words, the ones who are the originators who think they're in need to understand that the blessing that comes on those who've understood the grace and the finished work is bigger and better than what it is from these, uh, us who are trying to protect this inside, you know, thing. Um, that shall not be cut off. Okay, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So there's an everlasting thing going on here on the people like the eunuch who couldn't have everlasting because he wasn't capable, but now he's capable of producing something that lasts forever. Uh, verse 7, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Now that's interesting because they weren't permitted in the holy mountain, but now they're being brought by God to the holy mountain, and make them joyful, listen, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. In other words, the whole context of this is about who is gathered in is what makes it a house of prayer. So I put these words, it seems that it's who you facilitate for God, not what you say to God, that makes it a house of prayer. Okay, let me say that again. It seems that it's, it's who you facilitate for God, 
not what you say to God that makes it a house of prayer. So when we say God's house of prayer is because that's where people pray, as in implore God, we have missed the point. It's a house of prayer when God looks and sees inclusion and acceptance and belonging. So every time we embrace and engage with someone who in the context of how they flip the righteousness and justice thing are unworthy and unqualified, like the eunuch or the outsider, every time we make a situation to engage and embrace that, there is a prayer goes out of this house to God with which God is well pleased. And he says, there's a house of prayer. Not when you say, well, you know, we spent three weeks of fasting and we prayed for 24 hours round the clock. That, I'm no doubt that has its benefits. I've done all that sometimes and seen absolutely squat happen, right? And I'm sorry to say that because I don't like saying that. I'm very, I'm very protective of the name of God. And, and I know that I can say, yes, but it wasn't what you see at that time. You know, there was all the unseen. And that may be true, but some of the things we implored God about and prayed about, zilch, right? Now some things, some things happen that might have been the hand of God. It might have been good luck in some of them. I don't know. But what I'm saying to you here is that when we take it into that arena that says it's the words that we are speaking, the prayers that we're doing that make us a house of prayer, that is not consistent with the root of this. Now, I think we should pray and we should say, but it should be the confession because, because he's our father, Jesus is our brother, Holy Spirit is our helper. And when it comes out of that, it's because we're already a people who are accepting and loving and making space for all the mess and the issues and the problems and the impossibilities of exclusion. That's a house of prayer, okay? So we don't pray to get that, the words that we speak should come out of that. And if our words are coming out of that, there is a boldness and a confession that's saying, God, we just embrace this and we thank you for the opportunity and the ability and the possibility for us to be involved. And some of the rest, we just, you're a bit wiser than we are. So, you know, we'll keep doing this and you keep doing what you do. So, yeah. So to that, I want to add just, just, one other thing. Um, to that, we add the Our Father approach to our prayer. Okay, Chris said last week, you've got these two examples, Jesus praying for his disciples. You know, I pray for these who you've given me. And uh, thanking the Father that he lost none except the son of perdition, who is Judas. Thank you, Lord, we've done pretty good here. I've lost none of them except him. <laughs> and you think, well, okay... Why? Why didn't Jesus say, I've lost none of them? One of them's a bit of a problem, but I'm praying to you and he's going to be okay. Now again, people, again, the mischief is, yeah, well, somebody had to betray him. Well, okay, so that's like saying, poor old Judas, he drew the short straw because somebody's got to betray me. So, hey, Judas got the short straw. Sorry, son. Curtains for you, my friend. Um, see how so, so much of it doesn't, it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And I think you've got that example as well you might want to bring about the um, sinners praying. And I'm, no, that's, that's why I said I'm going to leave that one to you. So, 
So even in that context, you have to say, well, it wasn't just a matter of Jesus, oh, you know, please save Judas. There was something bigger going on. And uh, I always like what Jesus said when he was in that prayer. He said, he said I've done what you asked me to do. Um, that was it, I've done what you asked me to do. And in my view, that God will never expect of us anything more than he expected of Jesus. And I don't think that's as complicated as we'd like to make it. It only becomes complicated when we corrupt it with all that old covenant thinking of works and expectation and performance. Um, I think if we just relax into the arms of Father and Brother Jesus and Holy Spirit Helper, that by and large, pretty near, we're doing what he asked us to do. You know, you might be doing what he asked you to do because you turned up on time for your lecture at uni today, doing what he asked me to do. See, it's not... We, we, so often we frame that around the lives of people who have had a platform that, oh, well, you know, they're doing what God asked them to do. Most of us will never be on a big platform like that. We get up, we have our breakfast, we go to work, or, you know, we, we do whatever we do. We go out, we mix with people. And, and that's as much doing what you, what you asked me to do. And we, we have to settle to that and think, you know, God's not this despotic, wicked person trying to make sure that this thing called God's will is so difficult to find that we are more likely to miss it than we are to live in it. And that if we do find it, it will be because we've put in so much effort, we've got so near to God and we're so loving Jesus. And I'm not sure that becomes the will of God because if you sat where I sit sometimes and hear the people who will tell you what God is leading them to do, which incidentally... People ask advice of pastors when, when they're not making a critical decision in the sense of knowing you won't like it. But if they know their decision is something you won't like, they don't ask for your opinion or for your advice. They come and tell you, the Lord's leading me. God's told me. All of a sudden it's flipped from I'm thinking this and feeling that. What do you think, you know? to other laws. So all of a sudden now they're able to discern the clear leading of God when it's something that they want to do. So I said there's a lot of nonsense goes around that stuff and a lot of manipulation from our own, you know, human heart and desire. So that's what makes the thing then all complicated and I think we just have to settle into Father's arms, Brother Jesus, help us, Holy Spirit and realise that even some of the stuff that seems difficult may well be embraced by the Father into the process that makes me be doing what he asked me to do. So if, he's, if I'm not in control of how others behave and, and God's not in control of every circumstance, then his will can't be something that is manipulated by that means. It has to be his will, has to be even being Father, Jesus being brother, Holy Spirit being helper and saying, do you know what? We'll just walk through this together because this is, this is the will now because this is where you are. Where you are is where you are. And he comes with it. So I think, again, sometimes if our prayers would embrace that, then, uh, you know, so, so Chris mentioned about the, you know, the, the, the prayer of this then is how you should pray, not necessarily what you should pray, but I love where it starts. Our Father in heaven, that's where it starts. Hallowed be your name. Or in other words... 
What Jesus is trying to put through is if first of all you can lose yourself into the fatherhood of God, it will pull you out of wanting to pray like an old covenant believer or an old covenant non-believer because you've not lived in the place. It will pull you through immediately. Our Father, our Father. We're, we're now pulled into a different mindset because now it's not an authority that we have to appeal to. It's a Father that we are having communion with. So our Father in heaven, we appreciate who you are. Hallowed be your name. And then, of course, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. Um, again, the whole thing of possibility, not inevitability. Chris talked a little bit about that last week and then talked about the things that we come into our provision, he's interested in. Um, uh, and uh, our level of forgiveness and, and you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. Our, the way we interrelate with others is an important issue. Spend time on that, getting our own hearts to where, you know, forgiveness is never about the other person. Forgiveness is always about you, right? It's not about whether they receive it or how it makes that person feel. It's about whether you release that and how it makes you feel. And then, of course, the the whole thing about leaders not into temptation is the whole issue of, of, of leading, being led by things other than just communion with the Father, being led by the things that pressure us, the temptations we face, you know, the things that batter us into a certain cause. Yes, yeah, circumstantial things. It says deliver us from those things. You know, don't, don't let us be led by the pressure of circumstance. Help us to see through that Something more precious and special with you as Father. And then, of course, you know, you've got into the, the whole thing yours is the kingdom of the power. Um, so, um, finish off with my rule of thumb, which you've heard me say many times. It's important to me. I'd like it to be important to you. Because I think it's important. Which is the thing you'll have heard me say, that it's not so much what my prayers are saying to God but more about what they say about God that truly matters. You know, if you want to glorify the Father, what we say about him or what our prayers are saying about him are much more important than what our words are saying to him. And I've, I've stressed this to you before. I'm going to clarify it just one more time that when I have listened historically to myself pray, um, the words are brilliant, but what that says about God when you stand back and reflect, can be quite frightening. That God is, you know, when people say we're praying for a revival, what the flip does that mean? It can only mean one thing to me, that, that there are people who need something that God has, that we're saying he wants to give them, but he is not going to give them, and that unless we stand in the gap and implore him to send revival, they'll never get it. So therefore, it's not about God's love for them or God's love for me. It's about God's, God's, God's narcissism. If you just praise me enough, if you just pray enough, if you just bow down to me enough, then I might, I might possibly consider doing what you're asking of me is a wrong understanding of God. So this idea of you know, praying for revival, I mean, I've said this across the world, got into a lot of trouble for it. I said, I don't think it's right. And if you look at what Jesus said, the other thing Jesus said, 
He said, the fields are white to harvest, or in other words, there is a harvest of people. They've been, they have been seeded and brought to fruit by the seed of God's Spirit through Jesus in humanity, by the light of his presence. And he says these words, he said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into the harvest field. So I, I've argued this with people. He didn't say pray for a harvest, he said pray for the workers. Because the problem is not that there isn't a harvest. The problem is that the workers haven't caught the plot. So he didn't say pray for revival to come in our terms. He said pray for the workers. There's already, the fields are already ready for harvest. And if you can wise up. So, so the prayer was for us to wise up to what already exists. And then in that to, uh, to go and do what we were sent to do. Which I actually believe first and foremost is the one of inclusion and acceptance, and tolerance, and love, and kindness that brings them into the place where the light of God's grace can uh, touch their lives as well. So I hope, I hope that's helped, and I hope that rule of thumb helps you. I listen to my prayers and say, what are my prayers saying about God? If my prayers are saying, he's Father, Jesus is brother, Holy Spirit is helper, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. If my prayers are saying he's an authority figure out there who needs to be implored to grant authority for something to happen here, I've missed the boat somewhere, I'm in old covenant, I've never made the transition and not received the revelation that comes to us in Christ. So I hope that helps a little bit and uh, Chris might have a comment or two and then we can, we can chase after the, the little question thing, can't we? Okay. Hello. Well, I don't want to remotely cover anything that Ant's covered because uh, it's interesting some of the things that uh, he has said I'd got down to say, so I'm going to try and miss out all of that. Um, what I do want to do first is that, I don't know if Vicky's here, but Vicky did ask a question um, after last week and it was, Ant did mention, it's about, um, okay, this, we were talking about prayer in the context of how to get the result I want. Uh, what Vicky said was, uh, how do we look at prayer in the context of, of cultivating that closer relationship with God? Um, and she used the phrase, you know, Jesus went off on his own to pray. And, uh, you know, how do we uh, look at that? Now, that's an interesting question, and I want to cover it, but I'm not going to cover it for very long. Um, but I want to, uh, you know, the words that have been said already, if we just put it there, relationship is one that's uh, used a lot and intimacy is a word that's used a lot. I want to just put over here, I know it's not nothing to do with sides, but just so that I can have these words written down. Now you know that I'm absolutely anti this, but I'll tell you what I'm becoming more and more, I'm anti this. Do you know why? Because it's becoming that. Honestly, and I'm going to try and explain that because we, uh, when I say we, it's the royal we, in desperately trying to get away from the thou shalts of religion, wanted to make it relationship. But when you then looked at what was required in relationship, there was as many thou shalts in this than there is in that. Now, 
I just want you to just focus on that for, for a little while because once you then get onto this whole idea of cultivating this relationship with God and it's good for you, you have to ask another question. Why? <laughs> I know I think a bit daft, don't I? It's just what I am, I'm sorry. But you think, why? Motive. What's my motive for drawing closer to God? Because it's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Well, I've already got a problem with that because basically it's a if and then. It's a you draw near to me and then I'll come close to you. Well, I've already got a problem with that because to me, that's sort of sounding old covenant. New covenant is that the, the Holy Spirit's already been given. He's dwelling within us. And I'm going to come to that in a, in a, little, in, in a minute, but I'll as I usually do, I'll jump to the end. Instead of these two and talking about having a personal relationship with God, how about changing our language to being in Christ? Now you might think, am I being, uh, is it pedantic or semantic or whatever the word is? You might think, what's really the difference? There's a huge difference there. Because if I am in Christ and Christ is in God, I don't have to draw near anything and he doesn't have to draw near me, if you see what I mean, because we're in, we're, we're in. And I loved it when actually, and I've still got it at home, uh, Vicky, and she asked this question, she's not here, but if you're listening, Vicky, at some point, you, you gave me a card and she said, when we were talking about this whole idea of being in Christ, it was a picture of uh, the... the uh, uh, Russian dolls, and when you open them up, right in the middle, there's the baby, and then of course there's whatever else, and you might have up to 10 inside each other. And she sent that to me saying, this is really a picture of what things are. So if that's the case, there's no issue of drawing near because we're in and we're completely surrounded in, in that context. So the motive of this cultivating a personal relationship and having this intimacy has got to be for a reason. And there's another word that we use, and I'm flying off the seat of my pants here. I hope this is okay. It's in order that we what we what might know him. Sounds lovely, but know what? Know his will, which is also to do with his character, and nature. So the whole idea of drawing closer to God is in order to know him more, to get what? <laughs> Think about it. To know how to pray in order to get what we want. So even the cultivating of that relationship has always got a motive. And it's not just because we love him. Think about it. It's not just because we love him, it's because we think, well, and Anthony was talking about revival, you see, how do we get revival? Oh, well, it's because you go draw so close to God that you know his heart and then miracles happen. So it's this, can you see why it becomes religion? I hope, if you just see that tonight, I think it's so helpful. This becomes a religion. There's another thing as well. There's no space on here, is there? Uh, where can we put it? Uh, I'll have to write it little. Oh, shall I not bother? Right, two words. Transcendence and imminence. Two wonderful words. 
imminence means that re- almost reduced down. And that's where the lovely thought of personal relationship, Jesus coming within us, living in our hearts, it's wonderful. It, it, it brings it down into a manageable, t- uh, something that we can touch and feel for limited human beings. It's brilliant. But have we actually done God a disservice? Because then the other word, this transcendence, is that it's so big that in fact I can't even begin to grasp it. So what we do in this is bring it so small that we stop actually the whole thing being transcendent. Do you get me? And I'm going to read something now. Yeah, I like to jump around. This is the point. Um, The difference then between a personal relationship with God and being in Christ, here's the difference for me. We're part of a program as broad as the universe as opposed to a narrow, pragmatic and personal one. Now, do you see the difference? Now, I think it's both. We We need both. But if we reduce it right down to this, it becomes, again, religion because it's all the shoulds and shouldn'ts in order to get what we want. So think imminence, yes, all of God in me, I am in Christ, like that. But it mustn't then be so that it's big enough that it almost does our bulbing because it's so incredible. Does, does that make sense? So coming to what Anthony said as well about house of prayer, get this. Instead of cultivating a personal relationship, why not build faith in Jesus in the understanding of being in Christ and cultivate love for each other because as we do doing that, it's, you know the scripture that says, don't say you love God, but then you don't love each other. You see what I mean? Because in that, we have got, okay, we might have this personal relationship, but the truth is we're not actually loving each other. So we might be cultivating this relationship but we're not actually loving each other does that make sense okay so now I'm going to go backwards um the reason why we have a problem with this personal relationship thing or, or building a relationship is because we tend to make it and like I've just said we bring it down into this manageable human thing right and if you think about it How do we usually express that when we're trying to explain what we mean by that? Well, it's a bit like, well, you know, would you really love somebody if you didn't spend time with them? Are you seeing what we're doing? We're making the issue about God and me about how we do stuff, right? So if I want a good relationship with Jenny, I'm going to try and get with her. I'm going to try and talk to her. I'm going to make time to be with her. So we automatically transfer that understanding onto what it's like to have a relationship with God. Pre-human, have you, have you got me? Sounds great, but I think it's a bit shallow in many ways. Yes, I believe he wants to commune with me, but it's the Jesus is my boyfriend type thing in a sense. This is what Philip Yancey said. He says, getting to know God is a lot like getting to know a person. You spend time together, whether happy or sad, you laugh together, you weep together, you fight, you argue, then you reconcile. Yeah. And that's what we sort of saying we do 
with God. The other thing is, have you thought about it? When you're uh, going through a bad time in your, in your relationships, you then desperately are trying to figure out what pleases the other. Oh, what pleases the other? So can you see how religion's creeping in? Okay, we'll have a nice evening with God. We'll invite him around for a candlelit meal and we'll sit and chat. We'll try and figure out, you know, how I can please him because, you know, things aren't so good and, you know, we're not seeing the results we want. So clearly, the you know, are you following what I'm saying? The relationship can't be that good. Now, I don't think that that follows through. I think somehow along the way, we've been a bit, a bit messed up because at the end of the day, it's like saying, uh, I can figure out exactly all the buttons I need to press with God and everything's sort of going to be sorted out like that. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think we're a, it's a bigger, totally bigger picture. Does, does that make sense? Okay. So transcendence is God out there, which we don't like the idea of that because we think, oh no, let's bring it right in and have it imminent where it's God in me. But when we bring God in me, it just makes it, I have to, I have to minimise that in order to handle it. My brain doesn't work. I, I hope I'm making sense. I can't grasp that. I can only take so much, but that then limits God rather than, I'm just trying to tell you what the paradox is and why we have to, have to be careful. So, Here's the next problem that comes with it is this. So we say, well, how do we get to know God in this personal, intimate relationship? Well, then we know him through the word. Now, that's again where it gets complicated because you know how I said, if our understanding of God here is not correct, when you sat at the candlelight dinner and having your wonderful time, you're not sure whether he's happy or not because you don't know really whether you've pressed the right button or what he's after. I hope this is, I'm trying to be very just normal language with you. Um, and there's, a, there's also a problem, you see. If, if the Bible says, if we can find a verse, and of course we can find a verse for everything. I love what Rob Bell says. You know, I can, he can find a verse to prove everything you know, whether it be good, bad or indifferent, you can find a verse. But I just pulled one out uh, for you so that basically, if I have sin in my heart, the Bible says God will not hear me. Now, isn't that interesting? If I've sin in my heart. So if I am praying the word, but I'm sitting in front of my lover and I have sin in my heart, then I can be trying all this personal relationship in the world and he's not going to hear me. But then we have another problem. We have the sinner and just take this, for instance, because I mentioned it last week, righteous, where is it? We put righteous becomes a condition. It says he hears the cry of the righteous, but the, the sinner he knows from afar. So here's the point. If we have sin in our hearts and he cannot hear us, how does God ever hear the sinner's prayer? Now, you, you might think that I'm a nut, but these are the thoughts I have. How does God hear the sinner's prayer? But the thief on the cross, Jesus said, I'm, I'm listening. Oh, hang on a minute. Is this, 
making sense. So we might be saying, okay, we know this word here because of this. We know what God is. But we're, if, if we've confused about the word, we might be totally misunderstanding who he is. So we have, how does he hear the sinner's prayer? Unbelievable. So it cannot mean, well, I'll tell you what it does mean to me. But when it says here about he listens to the righteous, ultimately we're saying that everybody's righteous. They just don't know it. Because if a person can be crying out unto the Lord and saying, be, be merciful unto me, a sinner, and he hears them, then what must there be? Paradoxes these, aren't they? So anyway, let me just uh, go back a bit. Um, where am I? <laughs> Other problems that we have with, with all of this. I don't think it's good to compare human relationships with the God relationship. I think it gets a bit messed up, but you can do that if you want. Um, it's about whether God is near or he's not near. I've already said it that, you know, if, if we believe, oh, I'll tell you where we're going to go. Right, Brill. Okay, this is where we're going. In Matthew 9, 14, the disciples, I think it was of John, you can put it up if you like, but it, it don't really matter. The disciples of John were complaining about Jesus' disciples because he said, your disciples don't fast and pray. Why? Right? And you're thinking, hey, that's a good question. These are the disciples of Jesus. John's were fasting and praying. Jesus's weren't. And the answer to, that Jesus gave was this, and I thought it's brilliant. How can guests of the bridegroom mourn? Is that up there or not? Mourn. I like that. Have you noticed how mourning is associated with fasting and praying? Oh, mourning. While he is with us. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then they'll fast. So I want to ask a question, where's the bridegroom? Is he here or is he there? Now, he's here if we believe in the Holy Spirit being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. He's here. If we believe that there is a second coming where Jesus is going to come back, then I'll tell you what, we better be fasting and praying like mad. But if he's here, then the bridegroom is with us. And he says, don't mourn. Don't mourn. Do we have his presence or not? If we have his presence, then the truth is we're told not to mourn. Good question. It's back to what we believe about God. Do we believe his presence is with us? Or do we believe that it's our job to get his presence to come to us? Interesting, eh? So, um, let me have a look. One more thing, I think. There's something else to say and I forgot what it is. All right. So, we get into these situations where it becomes more of a religion because there's that many provisos to the relationship. So, we have this issue of if we've got sin in our hearts, he can't come to us, that sort of thing. Um, then we've got things like, well, you can know the word. We were talking about praying the word. You can know the word. But then all of a sudden it's like, well, it's not as simple as that. But do you really know the word? Come on, you've come across that before. When people have said, oh, well, you know, have you really given your life to Jesus? 
well, yeah, I, I, I believe I have. Oh, well, you can't have if these things are not happening. So we always find a way to say that we aren't really in relationship with God. I've had people say that that many times about so many. Oh, well, they weren't really saved and all of that. Well, anyway, moving on. Then you get uh, situations like Jesus saying to the religious leaders in John 5, he says, you've searched the scriptures, you know the word, but you refuse to come to me. So what we're proving is that you can know the word in the sense that we're talking about in order that we might know, but in fact, it doesn't create the relationship we thought it was going to. Then I love this one. The reference to Enoch, that he walked with God in a very profoundly incredible way because it said he didn't die, he just went, that sort of thing. So it makes you ask the question, does it? If I finally sort of disappear from my bed and I don't die, but I just go, you can say that Chris had this incredible intimate relationship with God because that's what's going to take for it to be believed. Are you, are you following me? I know this sounds daft, but it becomes unattainable. And there are people over, the, over history, like, for instance, a guy called Jonathan Edwards, and he's the one who preached that most terrifying uh, sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? And it is written up over and over again, the ecstasy that he used to go into in his intimate relationship with God. I can show you stuff that's written down and you think, well, great. Didn't do much for his, his, his heart of love towards people. Oh, he went into ecstasy. Yeah, he, he probably slipped a pill, I don't know. But he certainly didn't have any idea of the love of God, and yet he was having this intimate relationship with him because he got up and he said, I'll tell you what, God is dangling even your babies over hell. Ooh, he did him a lot of good by the sounds of things. I hope I'm making sense here. So anyway, then of course the next one is, oh, well, of course you've got to create, create the right environment. This one drives me nuts. Create the right environment. So, you know, you're told, well, you know, you've got to sing this way and you've got to sing this sort of song and you've got to do it this way. And if you don't do it right, you don't create the presence of God. And, oh, you just think religion, religion, religion. And this is supposed to be a relationship. Anyway, um, we then sort of say, well, God's impressed by faith. I just want to go back to that, that scripture about the bridegroom. If he's with us. If he's with us, then we don't mourn and we don't do those things that are suggested that you do when you're craving something. Now, Anth already said in, when he spoke was that a lot of the, the desire for God in this relational, intimate way was Old Testament. And I believe it was for a reason, it was because for one thing, God was very out there. Like he said, the new covenant brings it to us, which is wonderful. But I want to make sure we keep, we keep it bigger than just that manageable size. You know, you know what I'm saying? I hope that made sense because a bit, bit of an issue there. Uh, right, I think I've just got one more thing to say and then I'll shut up.
or I might have said it all. Uh, oh yeah, have you ever asked the question, did, God, uh, did Jesus speak in tongues? Because me and Ruth were talking about, you know, the, the fact that Anth mentioned on um, Saturday night about speaking in tongues. I looked to see if there's any uh, reference to Jesus speaking in tongues. Now, he might have done, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he didn't, but there's no reference to it. Of course, you have the speaking in tongues reference to the day of Pentecost. But then you have to ask the question, well, why didn't he need to speak in tongues? And why was there such an emphasis on us speaking in tongues? And you just have to think, well, how many things are brought in to somehow reinforce or justify a, a sense of, if I can do this, I must be okay. And I, when we talk like this, it looks as though we're just tearing everything down. In fact, I'm tearing it down in order to really make it simple, to say that if, if God is Father to us, it shouldn't be that difficult and it becomes incredibly difficult and I'm doing everything in my power to now make it much more simple because I'm I am too tired of being told how much we fail because it's always about well you failed you failed you failed you failed and uh, you know I'm thinking no because we know I know that I and the I and the father are, I'm one I'm one with him why am I one with him because he's done everything that I need I don't have to do a thing and then people don't like you to say that, oh, well, that's been very presumptuous. You know, surely that's not what you think. Categorically, it is what I think. And I'm going to keep banging that out. I believe that what Christ did, and we're not going to get into tonight what Christ did, but I'm saying whatever it was that Christ did, it is finished. And therefore, it even makes my, my prayers, my supplications, whatever I do, it's got to be easy got to be simple now you might say well then why don't we get what we ask for that's because the cosmic dynamics of prayer is so big that's why I say when you've made it like this we try and bring it down into understandable boundaries whereas if we take it into the transcendence it means that we realize we're part of something so big that sometimes we cannot understand why these things don't work. Now, do I believe all things are working together for my good? The answer is yes. Do I always like how it feels? No. Do I trust? Yes. Does God trust me? I believe he does. Do I trust God? Yes. I love the fact that, that in um, Ecclesiastes, and I said this the other week, Ecclesiastes and Job, it's wonderful that actually what we are brought to is just this incredible uh, understanding that most of the time, the reason why we get ourselves into trouble like Job and like Solomon when he was all depressed is because we were trying to bring it too small. When we try and bring it into human understanding, we, we make it just too small. And, and even God says, he says, look, he says, I don't even know why I'm having this conversation with you. Did you put the planets in, in space? Did you do this? Did you do that? He says, well, until you know how that works, shut up. Are you with me? Now you think, oh, well, that's not right. Surely you should be helping us. No, what I'm doing is trying to help you be more expansive in your thinking 
And while we understand that I am I'm in Christ, I'm also aware of, that's the thing I wanted to say. If God is, an, is a noun, is a name, and we personalise it, which is great, I love it because it's back to this, it's great. Or if we make it a verb, which God is action, is energy, is, is, is universe, and I'm not getting all new age on you, I'm just trying to expand it for you. If that's the case, we miss the expanse by making it small, and then we get stuck in all of these. Oh, well, have I done this? Have I done that? Is it my fault? And I mean, this one, I was talking to Anth today, that, that the prayers that I have, even the one of John 17 talking about unity, I have prayed for unity over stuff and I've beaten myself up for unity over some stuff and it hasn't happened. And then it can look as though I didn't care. No, I've cared massively, but it hasn't happened. And why? We know because... Some other people weren't interested in that. And so we have to let that be. But then not be bogged down with that because we've made it too small. We go back to the expansiveness of who God is. So I'll shut up. That's my, that's my contribution. Okay. Right. So what we want maybe to do for the last 10 minutes or so, is there anybody who's got any sort of questions that, either from this week or last week you want to throw out, or comments, it doesn't have to be questions. If you want to just, um, the microphone can go around because we want to have a, you know, opportunity for you to say something, right? Do you want to be the, the monitor? Yeah, I wrote down a question uh, last week with regards um, the Lord's Prayer. Um, the Lord's Prayer um, example that you put up on the screen mentioned uh, the evil one. Uh, and I immediately thought, well, I've never prayed the Lord's Prayer to the evil one. So it got me thinking, well, which version of the Bible truly reflects... Uh, yeah, one second, James truly reflects the Lord's Prayer that a Christian, um, well, us, should pray. Because it's a crucial prayer. Our Father. Which, yeah, it was, it was up there last week. If you can put it on if you, if you can. It doesn't say the evil one. It says deliver us well, from evil. one last week evil. said... Deliver us from the do, do, evil in the, one. In the NIV. Go on then, put it up. There it is. Okay, thank you. Sorry. But deliver us from the evil one. Okay. Well, and what that we... really got me thinking, mm-hmm. you know, which Bible version truly reflects the prayer that we should be praying? Okay, but nearly all of them are practically the same. But that one specifically no, says but it, but if, the if evil you, one. If you, yeah, okay, but evil one or evil, it only depends whether we accept that... that, that go on, have you got your, your interlinear going on? Go on. Go on. That's one of my problems with the NIV. Um, 
it, one of the problems with the NIV translation is that it is, it is an evangelical translation of the Bible. All the translators are evangelicals, which if some of you don't understand, ask me afterwards. Um, and so there have been some additions. For example, there are two additions I, I struggle with in, in the NIV. One is the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, is the English word flesh, okay? The NIV translators decided that was sinful nature, which is a very different thing. They put sinful nature because their process of belief is in that man is in total depravity and that the fall made us completely separated from God and therefore what we battle is the sinful nature which is like a nature within us rather than we just wrestle against our humanity which is a very different thing. And um, so in the NIV, it's the only translation that really uses evil one rather than evil because the actual... That's, a, that's an evangelical perspective that comes because evangelicalism uh, became obsessed with these equal and opposite powers. God's in a fight with the devil, and the devil's in a fight with God, so therefore we're in a fight with the devil. So it's not just about our acknowledgement of, of the power of God. We have to recognize the power of the devil. And therefore, how can you just win by living in the finished work of the Sabbath, surely you have to also defeat the devil. So then Jesus didn't defeat the devil then on the cross. Oh, well, no, we're just, we're just enforcing what he did. Yeah, but if we're having to enforce it, it wasn't complete. Do you understand what I'm saying? So my issue is, Dave, not my, my own issue is with, with the NIV translation in that context. But it's a good question to ask um, because... What we're wrestling with in prayer is a major question, and you know you've already heard my thoughts that that um, in our concepts we became too devil concerned. It's all about fighting the devil, all about principalities and powers ruling over dominions, and we've got to tear them down, and all that stuff. Where actually we have to come back to it. if He is Father, hallowed be Your name, and He has exerted His fatherhood then it's not us that fights the evil. Does that make sense? Well, and as well, if we're praying to be delivered, whether it's from the evil one or from evil, it's pretty much the same principle, isn't it? Because it's that which would would be harmful. Can can we then define what evil is? You've defined what (laughs) sin is or temptation about circumstances. Mm -hmm. Can we define what evil is then? Oh, it's a big one for tonight, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, oh, a big, big yeah, one. No, I mean, you've defined, you've, we've defined what temptation is about circumstances mm-hmm. uh, and life um, as opposed to the sin, the circumstances and or evil. Mm-hmm. What, what is murder or, you know, what, what, what comes under the category of evil? Well, it's technically anything that brings harm. Anything that brings harm. But then, of course, you've got the issue of whether you call a tsunami evil because it's natural or whether it harms people but it had no evil intent. So you have to be able to differentiate that which is meant for harm and that which harms but had no evil intent. 
Mm-hmm. As I said, mm-hmm. we all have our own, when we pray this, we all have our own sort of mm-hmm. interpretation yeah. to a some degree. But are you saying then, Dave, that what you need to have it defined in order you can pray it, or do you no, pray No, I'm just it, asking the question. But do you pray it from your heart and know I'm, that no, God's no. going to figure I'm, that out? It's an important prayer uh-huh. to me, because yeah. I prayed this before I was a, was a, was a believer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it comes to, I know I'm hogging this, but... Mm-hmm. Um, so it comes begs the question now. We put up there earlier on um, under Hebrews, where it says uh, about the Lord's holy people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, who are the Lord's <laughs> holy people? Well, we call them the saints. Are they the elect? Because my question would be: Can only the Lord's holy people pray under the new covenant? Because Certainly, we're talking about God's Hebrews, that's house of prayer. It's a huge question, that, David. I'm, I, I really don't really... Yeah. Well, it's not that we're not able, but it would be so incomplete to try and cover that. Can we take it as an, an evening to do it? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's all right. Because it is, I've, I've got, it is I've, big. I've got a few questions. Please, give uh, us them. I only right, got, okay. I got two last week. I got the one about the Lord's Prayer, and I got yeah. the one about... Um, now, Vicky's. carrying on from that. Any that I get, I will. Yeah, we well, will answer. I'd just like to ask, under the new, the old covenant, could non-believers expect their prayers to be answered? Well, I think we've covered that. Because we can expect our prayers to be answered because the scripture says, ask, not seek, and it will be given unto you. That is the basic premise. But we're realising that in the bigger picture, there's a lot more dynamics that are at work, i.e., that if I want something off you, Dave, for instance, let's make it very personal. If I'm praying that you will give me something, but you don't want to give it, do I expect my prayer to be answered? Answered. The answer is no. Is that very personal? I'm sorry, but I just want to make it so hey, it's very, very hey, clear. So there's lots of things that I want, but can I, do I say, well, I've asked, I've knocked, I've done what God said, but the answer isn't coming. I have to say, then what is going on that is outside or in the bigger picture that I can't do anything about? And that's not God actually not answering my prayer per se, but it's, it's understanding that he has to limit himself within a wider understanding. So that's why I said last week, can God do anything? The answer is technically yes. But does he limit himself for the sake of our will the answer is yes, too. So he is not, uh, a, a, you know, we, we talk about God being a prayer answering God. We don't say there is not a prayer answering God. We say that he is a prayer answering God, but often things get in the way and then stop what would be the, the will of God being done. And we can't do anything about that, can we? No, no. Or can I, we? Yeah, but what, I've, what, I, what I'm going on to say is what I found very, very helpful was when Alan mentioned about a house of prayer. Mm-hmm. And he clarified what a house of prayer is. Mm-hmm. And a house of prayer is, it's those who is gathered in to make it a house of prayer. It's to facilitate... Facilitate inclusion. Inclusion. Absolutely. We did that last week as well. So we've done that twice now. We covered that last week and he's covered it tonight. Can you see it's there, look? House of prayer. House of inclusion. It's there. And it's true. To facilitate those to come to God, mm-hmm. and it's not what you say. Absolutely. So I found that very but, helpful. Thank but, 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 
remember, we can't even... It's not just words, because it's actions as well. So, like he said, we can be praying all the right words, we can think that we've got relationship here in intimacy, but if we're not actioned by being inclusive, then we haven't got a house of prayer. Thank you, Dave, it's brilliant. Thank you very, very much. And we're not avoiding these questions, it's just the big, and you can't do them in a sentence, and you've got to sit down. Sometimes it takes, you know, 24 hours to actually do, you know, your, your research, honestly. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. No, that's, I'll write it that's down. great. Yeah, no, that's, that's helpful, and I think it leads us on to other subject matters that we can tie in, because I think some people as well would have a question, what, what does the Bible mean by holy or not? Can, let, 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 me, let me just say this one thing while, while, it's, while it's in my head. Often when kids come and ask you something, you say something to them as a parent. Because they say, I want her, and you say, will you trust me? Right? Will you trust me? And I think one of the things I hadn't mentioned in there is that, is that at the end of the day, when we've expressed all the thoughts of our hearts, there is a question. Do we then actually trust Father, Jesus' as brother, and Holy Spirit's helper. She was, she had this got there. Well, I, I just wanted to say, um, the bit that's just really struck me tonight, and it's kind of spoken to where I am as well, and it's, it's brilliant, it's really helped clarify f- some things for me, um, is an understanding of um, the relationship turning into a religion. Because yeah. um, I know that's very personal for me, because that's actually how I was brought up. That really, really is at the core. Like I was given a massive amount of um, affirmation and value for um, for having a relationship with God, for hearing His, for hearing Him speak to me, for he- for going on His will. My parents still very much live on a um, God God says and I do type mentality. And as I've kind of got older, I have I've discovered that that there's elements, large elements of that that don't work for me and haven't worked for me. And um, and I think in recent years, having deconstructed quite a lot of the, the, my upbringing and, and things that have held, I've held uh, very dear and things that I've been given, um, I think what's happened is I've kind of lost, I, I, well, I don't know if lost the right word, haven't needed to put the same emphasis on the relationship but because my value has been attached to it then I've been left feeling like oh should I be doing something should I be doing this am I missing something am I you know that that thing about you know spending time with God you know I haven't haven't needed it because my value has changed but because it was such a big part of my life it's interesting that I've 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 almost had to grieve it a little bit but then that what's wonderful is actually understanding that by by minimizing God into my own human understanding my own my own personal relationship with him be, and it being attached to trying to find his will and then being that being attached to well if I haven't quite do I if something doesn't work out, did I get his will right? Did I not get his will right? And then, well, yeah. it must be my fault because I can't have heard him right. It's just maybe a big hot mess, to be perfectly honest. And actually, what's wonderful is actually being able to be in Christ and say, actually, what's wonderful is I think I actually am. And I think I am in that I am more at ease to just trust the big picture of it all. And I, and I, I place, I feel like, that's 
that's okay and that's wonderful and that's really settling for me in, in some, some way to be able to let go of the importance of the relation, that side of the relationship so that I can believe and be free to believe that the big why transcendence that I'm part of and that the goodness is there and is working to, with me and actually my focus is on the actions I can take in including people and making room for people is what I should be throwing my heart into, I suppose. I just think it was just wonderful, really. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Good. No, I'm glad you said that um, because the, the issue here, what you were mourning is the, the religion that had become out of what you thought was relationship. And that's what you mourn. And uh, I know I, I've gone through it. The worst thing about it, though, it comes that when that's gone, you are left with a sort of feels like an empty, empty space. And then we begin to question, well, what have I got? I was thinking today um, about this, the, this statement, all, all who wander are not lost. And um, there is an unfortunate um, criticism that's put on people who get out of religion of any kind, and that's why I brought this tonight, that even this becomes that. When you come out of religion, they can feel a sense of lostness because what people need is the trappings of religion. And again, you can celebrate all you want that, yeah, we're free from religion, but when a person feels as though they're lost, that's not something that they want to celebrate. But in fact, it is absolutely worth celebrating but most people feel, no, I've lost something here and I'm wondering, no, you're not, you're actually free. But that freedom, uh, you know, comes with a, a, a price. It's like a bit like jumping out of a plane and free falling, isn't it? Nobody likes that feel. <laughs> but actually, it's, it's a, an exhilarating thing. So thank you for that. I mean, is there anybody else who's got a, I know it's ten past nine, but... Um, well, in a way, I think what's been nice is just looking at so many different perspectives with regards to how prayer has been viewed over so many years and within the context of the church. And I think that taking it on the process from you, Chris, last week, and then and how you've kind of like brought it into a different perspective this week has been incredibly helpful. And I thought the relationship and religion thing was just brilliant because I think people basically mask religion under this new word and try and act as if it's any different, but in a way it's creating just as many problems. But I think one of the things that I've kind of understood with regards to the whole prayer thing is when we've talked about how, you know, it says, um, ask, seek and knock, um, and it's basically there for you. You know, even that scripture that you said last week, Chris, about, you know, that before you even ask, it's already answered, um, you know, which has posed a lot of questions that I've realised that in a way, we could say that if the kingdom works and if God in his entirety, like you say, there's this big picture, but everything in a way is completed, even looking at the finished work of Christ, everything's kind of done. When we pray, one of the issues that I find is that it is very specific as humans. We ask for very specific things. It's all about, for example, you know, if someone's sick, we ask for healing or this, that and the other. When, I don't know whether it was you, but um, something to do with, you know, should we be praying, you know, um, you know Lord, increase my joy or increase my, um, I can't remember the exact um, terms. The that John you, 17, yes, the unity. And increase unity my, wa my wanting for unity and joy and things like that. And I've realised, for example, I was thinking about even death this week. In the context that as humans, when we, we pray for an issue with regards to when we see death upon us or whatever, 
it's because our view of death is very different even to that of God's. For example, God understands that we're eternal beings and that death is an illusion. You know, even look at Christ and resurrection, understanding that actually everything continues and that I've realised that actually our whole concept of prayer has become so um, kind of so specific in what it is that we ask whereas I've realized if only we understand that actually all is complete and that if we just ask for our joy to be increased now our wanting for unity and things like that in a way do we then start to allow all those things to flow more freely to us because in when we often pray we come from a place that things aren't okay and that things aren't done um, so I don't know, that was just my thought. Um, so maybe that if we start to allow our joy to flow more freely and, and realise that actually all is working for our good in a way we're always getting what we want. I don't know. There you go, they're my thoughts. Awesome. Turn to somebody and just say, hey, that was all right. <laughs> if you believe it, though. <laughs> if you believe it. Um, so we've delivered our side of the bargain, what we said we would do, we would, we would uh, create an environment where this stuff, we really got down to the nitty gritty and we're finding out just how, uh, how what? Yes, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, uh, smile, joy, yeah. All right, thanks very much for being here. We'll see you Saturday. Remember, Anth is going off tomorrow. So um, he's going to be tearing down some strongholds. That depends whether he's over here or not. <laughs> but anyway, he's going in the morning, but we'll be there on Saturday. And come and bring some joy to this place, please. 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 Thank you. Bring some joy. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again.